0: Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church, Mission Viejo campus. Whether you're listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. Let's go to Luke chapter 4. Now, we're in a series called Why Jesus Hates Religion. And uh, it's surprising to people to find out that Jesus didn't come to found a religion, but he came to undermine what made religion Necessary to begin with. And so we've been talking about Jesus hates the kind of religion where humans think that somehow they can earn or prove uh, their way to God. Jesus hates the kind of religion that only polishes the outside of the cup but neglects the inside of the cup. Jesus hates the kind of religion that leads to hypocrisy. Jesus hates the kind of religion that neglects the poor uh, and the, the foreigner, the orphan and the widow, that neglects the horizontal relationship just for the sake of the vertical one. Jesus hates These aspects of religion, and the part we want to talk about this morning is how, at its worst, religion keeps insiders, insiders, and outsiders, outsiders. Instead of building bridges, it builds fences. And I bet there are a few of us, more than a few probably, who have felt at times that instead of being an inclusive thing... Christianity has been a very exclusive thing, which is shocking because when you look at Jesus of Nazareth, you will find very simply the most inclusive man that has ever walked the face of the earth. And we want to show that this morning, Luke chapter four. Now Jesus is preaching his first sermon and as first sermons go, this was, this one was pretty good, but it ended with his hometown trying to throw him off a cliff. So whenever I bomb in a message, I always comfort myself that Jesus did a little worse, um, See, see, I think that's so amusing. Luke chapter four, Jesus returned to Galilee, verse uh, 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. Jesus went up to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Jesus, if you don't know this, was Jewish. And he was, a very, he was a very observant Jewish man. And so S- S- Sabbath day, which was Saturday, you'd go to synagogue and as was his custom, this was something he would do. And often he would preach in the synagogues that he was visiting in. So he stood up and read uh, verse 17 and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, Jesus found the place where it is written. And this is in Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, the the word poor doesn't mean just those who are economically disadvantaged. The poor was a whole category of people who were considered disadvantaged or impoverished. So the crippled, the lame, the blind, the deaf, the demon-possessed, the unclean, those that were economically poor, anybody who wasn't a favored status by the religious elite were considered the poor. So the vast majority of the Jewish population at the time of Jesus would have fit into this category. It wasn't just the economic category. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, the recovery of sight for the blind. Now, and would you agree he's speaking literally and metaphorically, right? So the blind, he's talking about blindness that's not just physical blindness. He will heal blind people. But he's talking about metaphorical blindness, spiritual blindness, right? He'll open people's eyes to the love of God towards them. He sent me to reclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Who could argue with that agenda? That sounds pretty amazing. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And then Jesus says probably the most, well, one of the top 10 most audacious things that's ever been said in human history. He looks at his hometown and he says, today, this messianic passage is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, how hard a time would you have convincing your hometown that you were the Messiah? Anybody have a hard, you think you'd have a hard time with that? Right. I'd have a hard time convincing my wife I was the Messiah, let alone, and I haven't tried, I mean, I've tried, I, let alone my whole, my whole hometown. So Jesus sits down, I mean, he reads this, Isaiah 61 is a hugely messianic passage. He reads it, he sits down and he says, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, we think it goes over pretty well because verse 20 says, or verse 22 all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And they said to each other, isn't this Joseph's son? Now, in in Greek, in the language this was written in, that's an ambiguous statement because we don't know if they were accusing him. Who's this guy? Isn't he Joseph's son? Or if they were amazed going, wow, that's Joseph's son. We don't know which exactly they meant by that. We think it was more the negative version because Jesus doesn't affirm what they're saying. Instead, he says in verse 23, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, prophets are not accepted in their hometowns. They got up, drove Jesus out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off a cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. (laughs) And thus ends one of the stranger moments uh, in Jesus's ministry. So we need to kind of unpack why exactly they went from, hey, all spoke well of him to let's throw him off a cliff. There's a jump there that isn't immediately apparent in English that we want to review. So, first thing, it was customary for a Jewish man to get up and have a portion of the Law or the Prophets to read from. He chooses one that is read from Isaiah 61, except he doesn't read what's actually in Isaiah 61. He edits it himself. He inserts a passage from Isaiah 58, and then he cuts off a part that his audience would have known was missing. So go to Isaiah 51, or Isaiah 61, the original, Matt. So this is Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. The Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, right? That's the same. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, right? So he's still in the same ballpark. Next. Next slide. Next slide to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Yep, now he's inserted by this time in his version, uh, apart from Isaiah 58. And then to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, if you keep reading in Isaiah 61, it talks about how non-Jewish people called Gentiles in the Bible will actually be the servants of the Jewish nation. That is what the rest of Isaiah 61 goes into. Go to Jesus' version. Virgin. Did I say virgin? Jesus' is virgin. Go to his version. Jet lag, nice to meet you. Next, go to Jesus' version. Matt. Now. Please. There we go. Here's Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, right? That's the same. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, that's the Isaiah 58 bit, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, period. What did he cut off? The day of vengeance. Now, Isaiah was written to a community in exile. In Isaiah's time, Israel was oppressed by Gentiles. And Isaiah prophesies that there will come a time when that will reverse and the Gentiles will serve them. Jesus, in his inaugural sermon, shows up and he says, this messianic passage that you know is fulfilled in your hearing, but he stops it at the part that had vengeance on the Gentiles. In other words, what he's saying is, Israel, what you've had the whole time, will now be given to everybody else. Not a very popular concept. Nazareth was in a region that was heavily populated by non-Jewish people. Nazareth itself was fully Jewish. So the the Nazareans had a very high nationalistic view of themselves. We're the true Jews. We're the remnant in the midst of the ungodly. They would have had a high value on Gentiles Serving them, So Jesus anticipates their thinking, and he points to two Old Testament examples where God blessed outsiders. In the ministry of Elijah, hey, there were lots of widows in Israel, but Israel was apostate at this time, and so Elijah blessed a widow who wasn't from Israel. Elisha, there were many people who had leprosy in Elisha's day. But he was sent and cleansed a leper who was a general of an opposing army. This is what made them so angry. Is that it was the year of the Lord's favor. The Messiah had indeed come to preach good news to the poor. But the poor were being redefined to include everybody. Not just the poor in Israel. The poor anywhere. The insiders, who were so sure they were insiders, are now in trouble. And the outsiders, those are the ones that are going to begin to hear the good news. Can you see why they were a bit upset by this? Hmm. Okay, 11 o'clock. Let's have a conversation uh, briefly. You're in movie theater seats. And I realize in movie theaters, you just sit and passively consume. This, however, is a church. Okay, where people participate together. So I'm going to ask that question again. And we're just going to see if you're going to play along. All right, Or I will preach right here to you. <laughs> so, blah, 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 blah. Can you guys see why they'd be so angry? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Now, Jesus was preaching this into a world that had turned the pictures of grace of the Old Testament into systems of hierarchy and exclusion. And I know you're shocked that religion could do that. But this, fire up the circles, would you, Matt? Thank you. (laughs) See, he knows. So, if you wanted to meet God, you had to go to Israel. Now... This isn't technically true because God was at work everywhere, but the way Israel understood it was this way. You had to go to Israel. Once you were in Israel, you had to go to Jerusalem, the Holy City. Once you were in the Holy City, you had to go to the temple precinct. Once you were in the temple precinct, the temple had, was, was a series of courts that were each separated from each other. Now, the outermost court was the court of Gentiles. So if you were a Gentile God-fearer, in other words, if you were a non Jewish person that had great respect for the Jewish religion, you could come into that court and worship and offer sacrifice, but you could go no further. If you were Jewish and a woman, you could walk past the court of Gentiles into the court of women. You could offer your sacrifice there, but you could go no further. If you were a Jewish man, you could walk in past the court of Gentiles, past the court of women, into the court of Israel, and offer sacrifice. But you could go no further. If you were a Jewish man who was a descendant of Aaron, a Levite, a priest, you could go past the court of Gentiles, you could go past the court of women, the court of Israel, into the holy place, but you could go no further. If you were the high priest, one day a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, you could enter into what was called the most holy place. It was literally where God dwelt. Now, God dwelt everywhere and they knew that, but this is where God manifested his presence on earth, most specifically. It was separated by a foot-thick curtain, and one day a year, the high priest, after performing over a hundred different ritual washings could enter into the presence of God, but had to do so with a rope tied around his ankle and bells at the hem of his garment. Because the bells would let the people outside the curtain know you were still offering sacrifice because you ran a great risk of offering inappropriate sacrifice at which time you would die, the bells would stop ringing and they would have to drag you out by the rope. This was kind of a big deal. In the Old Testament, there were reasons for all of this we don't have time to get into. But can you see how quickly human evilness can turn what was meant to be a picture of God's holiness, majesty, and grace into a system of hierarchy and exclusion? Can you see how exactly you're going to do that, right? So, the most, the people who were considered blessed in first century Israel were Jewish, wealthy men. We have records of of men who would pray the following prayer every morning. God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Seriously. So they took that picture and turned it into a system of worth. So you were worth more if you got to come in closer. That was never what God intended. Into this, and I know this stuff doesn't happen today. I mean, I know, it's just back then, right? So... (laughs) Jesus comes preaching this message in that sort of environment, and he looks at people who were so astounded by their own Jewishness, they knew they were in, and he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor, and then stops it when it comes to the vengeance part. The implication being, God's favor was now going to be extended to everybody and that this no longer was the way God was going to do business because of how corrupt it had become. So go, if you would, to Luke chapter 6. Jesus starts marching around, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Go, if you would, Luke chapter 6. This is, I wish there were ways in English to convey how ridiculous some of the stuff he does would be. Like, I literally rack my brain and try to think of contemporary parallels, and I can come up with nothing radical enough. I mean, there's just nothing I can come up with that compares to what he does and how subversive and how beautiful he was when compared to the empty religiousness of his day. Verse 20, Luke chapter 6. Looking at his disciples, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor. Is that just the economically disadvantaged? No. It's the whole category of outcasts and misfits and less thans. Those that were considered inferior. Those that were considered broken and unredeemable and unforgivable. Jesus didn't say just say, hey, the, the Lord's favor is open to them. What He actually went and started redefining who was in and who was out. The word blessed means God's grace is on you. So he said, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, blessed is Osama bin Laden. You're in, you're in Nazi-occupied France. And, you, and you're preaching, blessed is Hitler. I mean, those don't even capture it, of course. But that sense of like, maybe that's as close as we could get. You don't understand. It was the rich people who were blessed. It was the ceremonially clean people who were blessed. And for Jesus to bless, just the opposite. I mean, it's no wonder that later he will look at the religious folks and say, hey, just so you know, tax collectors and prostitutes are getting in ahead of you. You may want to do something about that. So they had taken... What was meant to be grace, and what was meant to be inclusive, and they made it hierarchy and exclusive, and here comes Jesus simply saying, hey, those of you that are very smugly sure of your own inness, you need to know that's not how it's going. And those of you that are convinced of your outerness, I have good news for you. You're blessed. Yours is the kingdom. I mean, listen to who he chooses. And even today, are these people we would consider blessed? Poor, hungry, weeping, hated, excluded, and insulted. Would you consider those people blessed? Nope. And here comes Jesus blessing them. Look at what he says to the people who are the opposites of those things. People who are rich, verse 24. He says, woe to you. You've already received your comfort." Woe to those of you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to those of you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. So what he's saying is that the Messiah has come, but those who are convinced that they are the favored ones are actually the ones most at risk. And those that are convinced that they're the unredeemable and the hopeless ones, those are the ones who are actually blessed. Because they're not convinced of their own self-righteousness. I mean, it's astounding what he does here. Go to Luke chapter 7. This, this is ridiculous. I wish there was a way to capture in English what these scenes would have been like. Jesus never says no to a free meal, right? So he's always dining with somebody. And he's dining with sinners and tax collectors, but he's also dining with Pharisees. They were the group in first century Judaism that were the most concerned with purity and right behavior. Right? These were the people that added 1,500 rules and regulations to the 613 commands of the Old Testament. These people were in it, big time. So Jesus is having dinner at a Pharisee's house. Verse 36 When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, you have to get the setting. What you would do uh, is you would have a table that's maybe two feet off the ground. You would not sit in chairs around that table. You would sit on cushions. And a meal like this would go on for hours. There were several courses. It would be a communal meal. And you'd actually lean up uh, uh, shoulder to shoulder with somebody. And kind of lean on each other as you would eat the meal. And then you'd lean away from the table between courses. I mean, and and, and there was a big, big, uh, this was a huge source of etiquette for Pharisees. Because what Pharisees believed is that the way to stay clean before God was to make sure nothing unclean came into contact with you. So Pharisees would have like a half wall around this courtyard. And gathered around the half wall were the misfits of Jewish culture. They would literally come, the poor, the blind, the lame, the religiously sinful and unclean would all gather around a feast like that, hoping that during the dinner, somebody would throw a piece of food their way. And and if, if you were really bold, you would lob in a question for the religious leaders to consider. And if they were lucky, they'd consider it but there was one unbreakable rule that governed those gatherings the people on the outside never approached the people on the inside but that's exactly what happens verse 37 a woman in that town who had lived a sinful life all right in greek it doesn't mean she's made a mistake it doesn't mean she's messed up a couple of times it doesn't mean she's somebody that screwed up and you know is in the process of recovering This is a notorious sinner. This is somebody whose name you would know. This is somebody you'd warn your kids away from. This was somebody whose family had disowned her. This was somebody who was a stain on the honor of this little village. Okay? It's like the worst person you can imagine morally showing up at a banquet. Literally, that's who we're talking about. She shows up. And and listen to this. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. How many tears do you need to wet someone's feet? A couple? 42? No, that's the meaning of life. Sorry. You need lots of tears, my friend. But I like, see, that was conversation right in the middle of church. It's amazing. As she stood there behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Men and women, there is no way to capture the scandal this would have provoked. The conversation would have come to a screeching halt because there are many taboos she broke. Taboo number one is you don't come in from the outside. You do not approach the center table. Taboo number two is a woman would never touch a man in public. She touches the feet of Jesus. Taboo number three is a woman would never let her hair down in public. There was all sorts of background for this, but even some married men would never see their wives with their hair down. It was a sign of their holiness, their covering. She lets her hair down in public to wipe his feet because she was crying on them so passionately. A woman would never touch a man in public. An unclean sinner would never touch a rabbi in public. She's breaking all of these rules. Conversation stops. If Jesus were a proper rabbi, in the Pharisee's mind, his response would have been to pull himself away from her horrified and rebuke her publicly. And then he'd have to go cleanse, be cleansed because she touched him. Instead, <laughs> jump down to verse 49, 48. Instead, and Jesus tells a story to the Pharisee that's so profound. Instead, Jesus says, verse 48, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> the other guests began to mutter among themselves, Who is this that forgives sin? Remember, where do you have to go to get forgiveness in the first century if you're in Israel? Israel, temple. Offer a sacrifice to a priest. that's how you get forgiveness in the first century. Here comes a rabbi who's been infected with uncleanliness by a notorious sinner who's broken at least four major social taboos just to pour perfume that she probably uses in her unholy profession. She's dumped that all over Jesus, and he then forgives her sin. She doesn't even ask. She doesn't promise to go to synagogue every day. He just forgives her apart from the temple, apart from the priesthood, apart from the sacrifices. I mean, do you see why this guy got in trouble? Where did this woman fit on the scale of righteousness? At the bottom. And so Jesus comes to his hometown and he says, I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor to the poor. And then he comes and he says, blessed are the poor. And then he meets the poor. And he embodies the good news he's preaching to them. The insiders who were so sure of their insider status were shaken by the actions of Jesus. But the outsiders who were convinced they could never begin flocked to him. In 2,000 years, would you say that's reversed in the church? That today the church spends more time delineating who's inside and who's outside according to what you believe and what you do and where you go and who you hang out with. And so now, instead of non-religious people flocking to Jesus and religious people being uncomfortable with him, it's just the opposite. Religious people love Jesus and non-religious people think Jesus is nothing but religion. And this whole series has been a concerted attempt to let Jesus speak for himself. Because when you read him, you recognize how far off we are. Go to Luke chapter 14. So Jesus, he's at another free meal with another Pharisee. And he's sitting in another context where literally. (laughs) Anyone else want to leave? (laughs) Are you not entertained? Um, uh, Come on, come on. Little Ma- all the women are like, what's that? The brothers? I'm Maximus. Um, jet lag, brothers and sisters, no filter. So Jesus is at another free meal with another Pharisee, and he's sitting in another classic environment of haves and have-nots. In this particular instance, one of the has, have-nots has the audacity to have a fit of epilepsy during the meal, Jesus goes over and heals the person. And then Jesus observes how all of the Pharisees are arranged according to who's most important. So literally, around these feasts and festivals, these meals, these banquets, where you sat showed everybody how important you were. And Jesus just tells, he starts talking about, hey, how about you invite the outsiders to your banquets? Those people that can't repay you. How about you try that? And right at the end of that story, Jesus mentions something called the Great Banquet. Now, if I said to you, hey, let me tell you a story once upon a time, what would you know is coming? Fairy tale. If I said, let me tell you a story a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, (laughs) Star Wars. If I said, hey, two men walked into a bar, a joke. And the third one ducked. My favorite joke of all time. Two men walked into a bar. The third one ducked. <laughs> okay. Yes. Didn't work at the nine either. Now, I, I expected more out of you. I'm going to be honest. It's very well known in our community that the 11 o'clock service is better looking. <laughs> now, Jesus mentions the great banquet. To the Jews... In the same way that two men walked into a bar was a clue about what was coming, the phrase, the great banquet, would have been a clue for what was coming next. The Jews understood that when the Messiah came, the Messiah would throw a great party for all of the righteous people. All the unrighteous people would sit around and watch all the righteous people enjoy the banquet of the Messiah. So, when Jesus mentions, after he's rebuked them for the way they're sitting, Jesus mentions the great banquet. One of them, verse 15 of Luke 14, one of them very piously says, blessed are those who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. It's like me saying, blessed are those who are not left behind or something. You know, it's like a real pious sounding sort of thing. Jesus replies, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. Now, the minute you hear that sentence, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far, there, you knew exactly what was coming. At least the Pharisees thought. Who is throwing? Who's the master throwing the great banquet? The Messiah. And the great banquet is the Messiah's age that he was inaugurating. And who were the guests that were invited? Who would? Who would the Pharisees? Yeah. What? Holiest the holiest people. Who did the Pharisees have assumed were the invited guests? Yeah. Them. So the minute he says a certain man is preparing a great feast and invited many guests, here's what would have clicked into their brain. Messiah, end of the age banquet, and we're there. Okay, that's immediately what they would have assumed. And you have to understand that context to understand the punchline Jesus lays on them. Verse 16, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent a servant to tell those who'd been invited, like now, you would send two invitations. The first invitation would be a save the date. The second invitation would be embodied by a servant who would come to you and say, the banquet is now ready. So they've already received the first invitation and said, yes. Jesus now is telling a story where the servant is now telling them, okay, now it's time. But all of them began to make excuses. And these excuses are incredibly lame. I have just bought a field and I must go to see it. How many, how many of you come across people that say, yeah, I just bought a house and I need to go look at it. You'd go, really, you haven't seen the house, ever been to the neighborhood? You have no idea and you bought the house, right? Now, maybe if you're desperate enough, you do that. But back then, you would never just buy some land and then go check it out or you'd get desert. So, lame excuse number one. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Now, you'd never do that. It, I just bought a $400,000 car, and I can't wait to see it. I mean, you just go, no, I mean, this, just is how it, this isn't how it works. Still, another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Now, back then, all of these would be considered horrible breaches of uh, conduct that would bring dishonor upon the master. Notice then what the master says. The servant came back and reported this to his master. The owner of the house, the Messiah, became angry and ordered his servant, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in who? The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out even farther into the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. You think the Pharisees were a little shocked at the way the story went? Jesus was telling a story about them. They were the ones that received the first invitation. And Jesus is saying, as they found for whatever reason, they found reasons not to participate and none of their reasons were valid. And so now he has the master of the banquet, the Messiah himself, going to the poor, the blind, the lame, the crippled. He's justifying his whole ministry to them. And he's saying the insiders, in their smug self-righteousness, have missed it entirely. But those that were outside have to be compelled to be in. This is unbelievable. I mean, you just, I, I, I don't have words. The word compel, when Jesus says you have to compel them to come in, it doesn't mean force them against their will. It means that when you come across somebody so broken, they don't believe the banquets for them. Convince them that it is. I preached a message on grace, I don't know, a year or two ago. And right after the service, I met a drug dealer and a stripper girlfriend, weeping. We don't believe this. There's no way this is right. There's no way we can be forgiven. What do you do in those moments? What are you supposed to do in those moments? Compel them. It's for you. It's for you been a man who'd, who'd um, after a, another service, had come up and he'd said, I used to go to church, I've been away a long time, and I've done a lot of bad stuff. Is it okay for me to come back? What are you going to do? Compel them. It's for you. It's for you. See, we've lost sight of the fact that there is no sin big enough that the sacrifice of Jesus cannot cover. And there's no heart dark enough that the love of Jesus will not pursue. And there's no past bad enough that Jesus will not save. We, as the church of Jesus, have to compel the people who believe they're on the outside to come in. But we have a hard time doing that because we've been, we've ceased being astonished ourselves. Somehow we come under the idea that we belong, that we deserve, that if Jesus were here talking about who are the places, who are the people that will be in heaven with me forever, we say, that's us! And maybe Jesus would tell a parable about some folks who missed the point. And so we had to go beyond them to the outcasts and the misfits, the foreigners, the orphans, the widows, the disfigured in the American church, and compel them to come in. Why does Jesus, the most loving, inclusive individual who has ever walked the face of the earth, get the rap for being exclusive? Do you understand when people say, is Jesus the only way to God? No. He is God. He's not a way to God. He's God come to us. That's why there are no religions that get to Him. He came here. You want to know what love looks like? Look at Him. You want to know what God is like and how God responds to evil? If you want to know whether or not you'd ever be acceptable to Him, look at Him. And He ticked off the religious folks who were so sure of their own righteousness because He continually pursued. He didn't just wait for them to come, although when they came, He welcomed them. He pursued them. And he had to compel them. He'd say, Listen, it isn't the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. It isn't the people who are found that need someone to search for them, but the lost. And that's what the Messiah came to do. We, those of us who've given our lives to Christ, have lost this sense of proclaiming his grace to the poor. Do you believe that if Jesus were here today, he'd go to the abortion clinics? And proclaim God's favor on providers and patients? Do you believe he'd show up at a gay pride parade and proclaim the year of God's favor on those who are celebrating that whole way of living? Do you believe he could go to the Republican National Convention or the Democratic National Convention, whichever you're leading against, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? Do we believe he's that great, he's that good, and his grace is that big? There are some of us in this room, I saw them last service, and I believe they are still here, who simply have to be compelled by the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the community of God that the banquet's for them. You haven't blown it too big, you haven't sinned too much. It doesn't matter what you did last night, last year, or when you were a kid, it does not matter. And we're not comfortable with this. We like that broad grace when it's extended to us. But when it's extended to my enemy, I'd like to see a few restrictions on it. I'd like to see a few hoops you've got to jump through first. Some apologies you need to make. Some doctrine you've got to get right. Jesus is hanging on the cross and there's a dude there who obviously has not lived a very good life sitting next to him they don't crucify minor petty criminals. They crucify people you wanna make an example of. And this dude's looking at Jesus. Another one of his dudes is making fun of him and he goes, you know, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what's Jesus say? You're in. You're in. (laughs) When people tell me you gotta do this or do this or do that or believe that, I just go, really? Really? The dude cried help. And that was it. So there are two kinds of people in this room. There are those of us convinced that we could never belong at the banquet. And then there are those of us who are convinced we do. For those of us who are convinced that there's no way, we've just barely scratched the surface of the love of Christ for you. Don't take the church's word on this. Study it for yourself. These inspired gospel writers who decided the most important things they could tell you about Jesus were how much he loved people who weren't considered blessed in his day. So we proclaim the Lord's favor to you then there are those of us like myself who are convinced we've earned a place at the banquet. And now we think we have to be gatekeepers of God's grace to other people. And brothers and sisters, because that's me, and if that's you, we absolutely are called to repent. So we're going to take communion today together because communion represents the great leveler. (laughs) When you take communion, there's nobody looking around to see whose sin list is bigger or whose religious list is better. Communion is literally the reminder of the sacrifice of Jesus that saved me. And that's all we have in common, right? We're human, we're sinners, and there's something compelling about this Jesus character. We wouldn't agree on politics. We wouldn't agree on, you know, where we've come from and the best way to limit government spending and blah, blah, blah. None of that matters in a community like this. In a community like this, we hold up Jesus of Nazareth and simply say, it's for you. He's for you. And for those of you who've said yes to him, who are we? to restrict his grace to anybody else. So I want you to take communion today, not only reflecting on God's love for you, but reflecting on God's love for the person you can't stand, for the person who's hurt you, for your enemy, for the person that anytime they come on the television, you curse them in your head, for the group of people that you harbor prejudice against. See, God's not tolerant. Tolerant is such a mushy, insignificant, puny word. God is love. So, brothers and sisters, um, if you're new to Jesus, or new to the church, what's going to happen are two gold plates are going to come by. Gold plate number one will have bread. Oyster crackers. Because oysters represent something, I'm sure, profound. Second plate will be little cups of grape juice. Nobody is at the end of the row counting how many we're taking. So if you're not comfortable with this, no one's going to care if you don't participate. There are warnings given in the Bible about taking communion, but they're given to Christians. And so if you're here, and you're new to Jesus and you want to say yes to him, this is a great way to do it. If you're here, you are a follower of Jesus, we're going, to give you just, we're going to give you just a moment to reflect on the significance of what it is that we do. What I want you to do is when the bread goes by, take some bread. When the cups go by, take a cup. And then would you hold each so we could take it together? I'm going to pray. Ushers, hold on. I'm going to pray. Give you a moment of silence to reflect, then we'll pass out communion and worship together. Son, all right? Okay, good. I'm glad you approve. I was going to do it anyway, but it's more of a rhetorical question. Okay, so shut your eyes. Father, help us to again be astonished at your grace and love. Help us again, Lord, to be reminded of how undeserving fundamentally we are of salvation. Help us to be reminded God, help us to be compelled that the table, the feast, the bread, the cup are for us and for each other. God, I pray by the authority of the Lord Jesus that you would set some hearts free this morning from the shame and condemnation, from a past that has just fully never been cast aside, from words that were lies spoken over some of your sons and daughters that just aren't their primary identity. God, I pray that you would do in us what we can't do for ourselves. Renew us, restore us, bring healing, help us to forgive and be forgiven. God, this is sacred stuff. When we come near to you and are reminded that the year of the Lord's favor has been proclaimed for us. And Spirit of God, if there are those who fear far far away this morning, would you compel them close that it's for you This is for you. No matter who you are or what you've done, Jesus draws near. So would you take a moment just to pray in your own way? Just in quiet. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariners Church Mission Viejo Campus. For more information about Mariners, visit www.marinerschurch.org.